Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. You can't change the system tomorrow by yourself, but think about what you can do within your circles. But it has to start with taking care of yourself. Um, If you don't take care of yourself, including what you put in your body and what you do with your body, it's gonna be very, very difficult for you to impact the lives of other people to the degree that you like to. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because each week I get to connect with each of you and bond over the one big thing that we have in common, and that's our shared love of living plan strong and celebrating the heroes who continue to mobilize this movement in the right direction. I also know that like me, you're realizing that we can never really grow together unless we continue to have these important shared learning experiences. This week, we continue our conversations and open dialogue about health, race, and shared human connection with Dr. Jarek Conrad. Not only is Dr. Conrad a human resources expert and consultant, but he is also a certified emotional intelligence expert and intercultural sensitivity expert and author of the best-selling book, The Fragile Mind. His life's work is to help others find common ground and develop deep and meaningful relationships, both in the workplace and in society. Despite our vast differences, how can we come together to make our lives better and more fulfilled? How can we, regardless of our backgrounds, foster empathy and understanding? These are some of the questions that we explore in today's eye-opening episode. And did I mention that Dr. Conrad and his family are also whole food plant strong advocates? Indeed, as you're going to hear, this man who grew up in poverty-stricken East St. Louis holds a certification in plant-based nutrition and is passionate about helping others develop healthy relationships with food. As Jarek suggests, when you rid your body and mind of unnecessary toxins and processed junk food, it will have a direct positive impact on your emotional IQ and leadership style, both at work and at home. It's also Dr. Conrad's belief, as well as mine, that changing what we eat will also help us forge deeper and more meaningful connections with each other right here in our own communities. And the world could use a little more of that right now, as we all know. Welcome, Dr. Jarek Conrad. We discovered a silver lining through COVID-19 by forcing us to change our ninth annual plant stock event to an online format. It has allowed us to reach many, many more plant curious people around the globe. 
And right now, the need has never been greater for people to adopt a whole food, plant-based life. This year's event will feature the brightest luminaries in the scientific research, including Dr. Michael Clapper, Dr. Sarai Stanzik, Dr. Michael Greger, my father, Dr. Cobble B. Esselstyn Jr., and a host of other rock stars. Join us for our upcoming online plant stock weekend from August 14th to the 16th. We are packing this live event with science and practical application and offering you a chance for your whole household to learn and cook along with us. We're going to also give you a front row seat to the Esselstyn family farm. And if you can't watch it live, don't worry. Video access is included for a year with every ticket and partial proceeds will benefit the Esselstyn Foundation, the 501c3. And financial assistance is available for those who need it. Visit plantstock2020.com today to learn more. Dr. Jarek Conrad, I want to welcome you to the Plant Strong podcast. This is season two. And season two is really about welcoming people that have the heart of a hero. And, you know, in reading up on you, reading your book, The Fragile Mind, uh, the beautiful introduction that was given uh, to me of you through our mutual friend, Dr. Elizabeth Winings. Yes. Uh, I feel really, really fantastic about having uh, a very open conversation with you. Um, and, and let me just frame it up right now for people because obviously right now in America, uh, we have all these conversations that are going on around racism and anti-racism. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's really important that, that you and I can have a conversation that will bring value, uh, to this current narrative. Yeah. Uh, and specifically I'd like to have this conversation be more around kind of nutrition and health or lack thereof that's Absolutely. going on in this, in this country. Absolutely. Uh, let me also say, uh, Jarek, that, you know, I know that you, you are so well-educated, you know, you're a intercultural sensitivity expert. And I want to say up front that if I say anything that is inappropriate or, you know, like, Hey dude, that was not cool. I hope you'll call me on it. And then, and then help me figure out the, the best way to, to say it or phrase it because I'm, I, I don't even want to pretend like I'm nuanced or, or, or very good at this. Well, well let, me, let me let you in on a, a little secret as okay. we get started. Yeah. You got to take these words, expert, you got to take that kind of stuff with a grain of salt. You know, <laughs> I am studying this stuff. I talk yeah. a lot about it, but you know, all of us are still trying to learn as much as we can about human behavior, what makes us tick and why. And so uh, same here. If I say something <laughs> that rubs you the wrong way, I, you know, I hope you say, well, Jarek, well, when you say that, well, eh, it feels like this. What do you mean? Yeah. Uh, because if we don't have these open conversations, then uh, we can't move anywhere. And anytime you engage in some discussions, when you start talking about things like race, for instance, yeah. uh, it can get dicey for people. But, but I'm always willing to take that risk because I'm looking at, toward the other side of it where we can all learn and grow together. So, so don't be, don't be worried yeah. about that. Well, that's good. So it's okay. If, if we get a little uncomfortable, it just allows us to get more comfortable down the road. 
That's right. Absolutely. All right. Good. So I, I want to just start out by uh, just a little bit about you. And, and then I want you to correct me or go back if anything, you know, uh, I missed something or you want to add something. So first, and I think it's important that we say this, you're a black man, right? Right. And, and, and to start out, and to, and to start out, <laughs> and to start out, um, because a lot of people are just going to be hearing this on audio and not, right? Um, is that the correct way to refer to yourself when I reference you? So I'm, I am fine with African-American, with black. I, I am, I've, I've really been trying to think about these labels and I'm yeah. really encouraging people to use, you know, American from African descent, something like that, because I am in some ways, I think when you put something before American, it serves as a little bit of an asterisk yeah. and it almost subconsciously makes people think that that's a different kind of American or lesser of American or not full American. So I would prefer, even though I'm the only person probably saying this right now, I prefer that we move away from the Asian American or African American or, you know, Latin X American. I would prefer that we say, you know, American of African descent. I want to emphasize the fact that we have that shared experience as Americans. But on a personal note, you know, black or whatever, that's, that's fine. Okay. Okay. Uh, you, you grew up in East St. Louis and what's what's considered probably the most distressed uh i think part of town in america probably yeah. fair to say yeah right it's had some challenges <laughs> yeah yeah and and i want you to talk about that um you are like i said you're incredibly well educated you've got a bachelor's degree from the university of illinois you have two master's degrees from cornell university and you've got a doctor of edu education degree from the University of North Florida. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, and I know you've got a lot more degrees that maybe you can tell us about, but I'm gonna stop there for now. <laughs> you and your family eat a whole food plant-based diet. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and we're gonna dive, dive into that. Uh, is it fair to say that today, are you, the, are you the CEO and president of the Conrad Consulting Group? Yes, I am. I am. So I still have, I have the Conrad Consulting Group. I also work uh, full-time with an HR software company, Ultimate Software, uh, that's soon to change our name. We've just merged with uh, Kronos. Uh, so I am the quote-unquote thought leader. I run the thought leadership group uh, for Ultimate Software, uh, where I get to delve into some of these issues around uh, you know, nutrition and, yeah. health and wellness and all of that as well. Uh, I spent 20 years as an HR practitioner. Um, so, so this really gives me a chance to, to go back to my roots a little bit, but still think about these ideas and try to solve these really, you know, complex problems that we're, we're still struggling with. Yeah. Um, in 2008, you wrote this book right here. The, the Fragile Mind, yes. right? And the subtitle is How It Has Produced and, and Unwittingly uh, Perpetuates America's Tragic Disparities. Yeah. And, and this first came out 2008, and then you updated it in 2015. You've done your homework, man. I'm impressed. Well, well, well. <laughs> um, so in the preface of this book, uh, you wrote, 
And I quote, a lot has happened regarding race relations in America since the publication of the first edition of The Fragile Mind in 2008, meaning President Barack Obama, right? Yeah. Of course, most notably, yes, the election of Barack. You go on in this updated version to say, quote, individuals who thought that such a momentous feat would open the door to racial understanding and reconciliation in America have to think again. So, I mean, you know, wow. I mean, it's almost like you had a crystal ball. And so, you know, my question to you is it's, it's 2020. Obviously we are, we are staring uh, at a racial crisis. Like I don't think any of us have seen in our lifetimes. And my question to you is, how, how do you view what's going on right now? But before we dive into the nutrition part, I just, yeah. I just, I feel like this is yeah. kind of the, the white elephant in the room and I, and I want to address it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, and I'm glad, uh, I'm really glad that you're addressing this. Um, even though your show focuses on health and nutrition, it's just yeah. such an important conversation for all of us to have. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it a little bit. Uh, number one, I'm, I, I view it a little bit differently. Uh, I mean, everybody views it differently, right? We all have our own perspective. But because I talk about these issues and I write about these issues, I'm probably going to look at it from a different lens, from a different perspective than, you know, your average person that's working every day who doesn't, who doesn't get a chance to talk about these things. So um, I, it wasn't that I had a crystal ball. It was that all you have to do is read history. Yeah. And you can just follow the pattern in history when there's some significant uh, achievement as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, some significant milestone, it's immediately followed by some type of retrenchment, right? Uh, while there are forces that are pulling for change, there's still those forces that are desperately trying to hold on to the status quo for whatever reason that is. And so just as night follows day, <laughs> you can know that there was going to be some resistance to this change. It's too much, too soon for some people. It's changing what they know about what America is. So, so this was very predictable. So I'm not as surprised uh, that we're having these challenges. I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that we're dealing with these at such an outward level. Um, I guess I should be happy that what was under the surface is finally coming out so that we can deal with it. When you, when you say it, but when you say it's such an outward level, do you mean like with the, with the protests and everything like that? Or just well, I mean with, I mean with people's feelings about uh, these issues around race in America. I mean, the fact that uh, when you look at uh, hate groups, that those memberships have grown. When you yeah. look at, hate speech that people used to say kind of maybe in their own homes or in their pockets. Now they found their way to social media and sometimes to workplaces. Uh, I'm talking about uh, the things that like what we saw on the streets in Minneapolis, just, yeah, you yeah. know, what just troubled all of us. Uh, and uh, so, so some, some people who didn't feel as comfortable, uh, they knew it wasn't quote unquote politically correct to challenge uh, some of these advancements uh, from a diversity, equity, inclusion standpoint, but they might have been quiet in the past. Some people have been more vocal about hate, really, you know, more vocal about the whole range from hate to skepticism, you know, that whole range. So I think 
by people being more vocal. I don't know if there are more people who feel that way or if they're just more vocal. But I think many of us who had hoped we had moved past that were disappointed to see uh, that that was still there. On the other hand, when you look at the protest in the street, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm encouraged by the fact that the protesters didn't all look like me. Right? There were protesters yeah. from all walks of life, all backgrounds, saying, look, enough is enough. You know, we have to do something. So it's an interesting time, you know, and I think many of us who are black, and I'm, I'm sure uh, that there's some whites who are going through the same thing. We go through this emotional roller coaster. We're hopeful, something, we see something about that just gives us, uh, you know, some encouragement about humanity. Yeah. But then we see something that discourages us. But then we see something that encourages us. So, so I think a lot of us are on a little bit of a roller coaster and hoping that at the end of this ride, we end up in a better place than we are right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there, there is an intensity in the air that, uh, that I have never felt before. And, you know, between you know, COVID-19 hitting us right now between, you know, probably looking at, you know, another, if if not one of the greatest recessions, if not depression, and then what's going on with, uh, with, uh, with really this racial injustice that has just been taken to a whole nother level, at least, we're seeing it now in ways that we didn't see in the past. There, there, there's something in the air right now. And I'm, I hear you, man. I mean, I, I can't help just, I have a very optimistic kind of, you know, you know, nature think yeah. that, that good, good has got to, got to prevail here and, and come out the other side. It will. It has to. It will. It will. There are enough people now. There were always more good people than bad people. I, I, I've always believed that. Yeah. It's just that, you know, I always try to put myself in somebody else's shoes. You know, if I didn't look the way I do, you know, if I were, you know, grow, grew up in a different situation, born to a different family, and I didn't have to worry about this issue, you know, we have enough to worry about. Everybody has enough to worry about. You know, I got to work hard. Do I look good enough? Am I tall enough? Am I smart enough? Am I attractive? Hey, all these kind of things, right? And, you know, it's a struggle for a lot of people. And so the fact that they hadn't paid as much attention to what's going on with somebody that looks like me, I can almost see that that could happen. But I think this has now forced people to say, well, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is about humanity. This affects all of us. I probably should do more. I thought that not doing any harm was good enough. And the, the fact of the matter is in America, when you've got disparities built into all these systems, like the health care system, yeah. uh, for instance, when you th- have those disparities already built in, if you decide, well, I'm not going to do any more harm, but you don't do any proactive steps to close the gaps, it's impossible to close the gaps. Yeah. And so doing no harm, you know, really maintains the status quo. And the status quo obviously impacts people that look like me yeah. in negative ways. Yeah, no. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, b- before this whole Black Lives Matter really hit like full force, I think that, 
and I'll, I'll speak here. I think that probably most of white America maybe didn't know, didn't know, didn't really care, but I can't help but think that now almost everybody knows and almost everybody cares. And of course you're going to have your outliers, right? The hate groups that you mentioned. But I think that that's, those are like few and far between, I hope. Yeah, I, I believe that. I think the, what we have to work on, number one, is making sure that we isolate. If we're going to isolate anybody, isolate the people who, who, uh, who hate. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I think we sometimes make excuses for people. Uh, and we sometimes try to maybe look the other way and hope that this stuff will go away. It's not going to go away. It hasn't in all these years. Uh, I think all of us uh, who who want equality, <laughs> I think all of us have to figure out how can we be a little bit more active? How can we address sometimes it's people in our families who harbor these old, you know, uh, ideas about inferiority and superiority and, and all that. It's it's having conversations sometimes, even with people in our families that we love. So, so I do believe, Rip, that... Um, over time, uh, you know, the positive would certainly outweigh the negative. And I, I hesitate to say good and bad people. Yeah. Um, because they're just, you know, people are motivated for a whole host of reasons. And um, my, my job is when I'm talking with people about this who may, who may be on the other side, who may be, you know, doesn't, they don't see things the same way I do. My goal is always to try to get at the root of it. Like, like where are they coming from? Like, where did those ideas come from? And if I were in their situation, would I have those same ideas? And if that's the case, now I can address them at a human level and start to talk about our differences and how we can move forward. But if I just label them and put them in a box, they're going to re they're going to retreat and then they're going to come back really defensive and we'll never move anywhere. So, so it's tough, man. I try to stay away from, you yeah. know, most people do this and most people do that or, all people do this, or all people do that, or white people should do this and black people should do that. Because whenever we start putting those labels on, we've already, we, you know, it's kind of a non-starter because you can't say black people should, or black people feel, or black people, because nobody can speak for all black people. I can't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can't say white people do this and white people, because nobody can speak for all white people. So um, it's interesting, man. I, I'm weird in that I enjoy talking about this stuff because it's a <laughs> It's a puzzle that I love yeah. to be able to solve. Yeah. Well, you know, in your book, you, you actually address that. I mean, you address a ton of stuff in your book. I recommend everybody read it. Appreciate but you also, you also mention how you don't feel like people are good or bad, but rather they're just, they're human, right? Yes. And, yes. and that's really, you know, the, the, the fragility of the human mind, right? The fragile mind. Right. And, that's right. But, and you also talk about how so many of us in regarding to race have been negatively conditioned to race um, and probably don't even know it. Right. That's, that's it's right. Just like subconsciously in there and, and not even aware of it. Yeah, so, you know, it's fun to talk about these things when, um, and I know we're going to talk about, you know, health and a whole uh, plant base because there are some tie in obviously to, 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 to race there specifically around health disparities. But but it's, it's so fun to take some of these conversations outside of race and to prove some of these points 
uh, in a different context and then come back in and mm. lay in race. And then people say, oh, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. Saying, nah, I get it now. Yeah. Uh, so, well, so, and, and I'll just throw in a great example. So <laughs> in, in your book, you, you do so many great examples, but you talk about how, you know, I think there's a book out there about, you know, why are all the blacks sitting together at the lunch? Yeah, yeah. 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 But the example you give is, well, if you're in Hawaii and you're wearing like a University of Texas sweatshirt or a T-shirt and you see somebody else wearing that, all of a sudden there's a bond, there's a connection, and you're going to go over to them and say, hey, all right, you know, go Longhorns. That's right. It's a natural thing. We, we yeah. There's something about the human condition that we are attracted to people who have, you know, these shared experiences. There's something very human about that. Look, when we got started, you have your St. Louis T-shirt yeah. on. What did I say? Right you off said, the top, <laughs> like we're good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this St. Louis. Yeah. So, so that is a natural thing. And that's what I mean about how we have to really understand what makes us tick. So if we understand that that's a natural thing, then we can see now how people can stereotype. is really a function of the brain and the brain trying to work as efficiently as it possibly can. So to do so, it puts things in categories and boxes to try to understand the world. Because there's so much stimuli out there we, we just can't focus, on all, we can't focus on all of it. So if you start to really understand what makes us tick, you can see how we step into some traps when it comes to issues like race. And, and if you can predict those traps, now you ought to be able to get ahead of them. So my brain is going to want to put things in boxes, so I got to actively work against that. And how do I do that? by uh, really expanding my experiences, you know, with different people. The more experiences I have with people who don't look like me, who don't think like me, who don't believe like me, the less likely I'm going to stereotype by default. You know, my default mechanisms will be overrun by those experiences that I have. Yeah. So let me ask you one more question before we dive into um, nutrition. Okay. And, and that is like, so one of the examples that you gave in the fragile mind as far as, so there's a term out there called white privilege, yeah, right? Yeah. But, 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 um, so I think you have discovered in your training, instead of calling it white privilege, because then it makes probably, you know, whites bristle a little bit and all of a sudden they're on the defensive, you refer to it as cultural congruence. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's such a probably a more palatable way for somebody to hear that. And can, can you can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, this is I told you I try to put myself on other people's shoes. I imagine if I were born, you know, a poor white person, you know, born into a poor family in Appalachia or somewhere else. Right. Um, and I had to struggle and I had to really work hard. And I was the only one in my family to graduate and, and go to college. And I've you know, created this middle class kind of life for myself. And then I hear that term white privilege. Uh, it might make me bristle, you know, because I might read into that, that somebody gave me something that I didn't have to work hard. And that's not what diversity practitioners are trying to say when they use that term. But that's kind of what people can read into it because they can point to other people who are white, who might've been born into a wealthy family and say, now that's the person that's privileged not me. And what people are trying to say is, look, it's not that somebody gave you something. It's that you haven't had any artificial barriers, any additional artificial barriers set up 
against you just by virtue of your skin color like I might have. Yeah. And so given the same amount of work, um, because I might have to face more obstacles, more barriers over time, you might have fewer people like me that can, that can succeed. And so nobody gave you anything. You worked hard and nobody's taken away the hard work you've, you've, you've uh, put into accomplishing what you have. But you got to acknowledge that nobody's taken away anything. And an easy example of that is if you take, uh, you know, a middle class white person and uh, if you take a poor white person and even a middle class or wealthy black person, put them on the same outfit, you know, like they're going out to the gym, let them get in a car and drive to the gym, you know, who's more likely to get stopped? You know, who's more likely to, to be looked at, you know, with a skeptical eye? When, they, when people see me on the street in some workout clothes, they don't see Dr. Conrad with the degrees on the wall. They see a black man. And whatever they think about what a black man is, they're going to attach that thought process, that perspective will be attached to me. Yeah. So, and people say, well, I don't, that's not true. I don't see race. I don't know. We have study after study of MRI uh, data to show that even if we don't consciously see things like race, we subconsciously see it. And as part of our, our wiring as human beings, we, 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 our emotions work faster than our cognitive abilities to process those emotions. So we absolutely see these differences. We see whether that person is like me or not like me because I'm looking for those shared experiences. And the best clue of whether or not we have shared experiences, if I don't know anything else, the best clue I have is what I see. Yeah. And so race becomes this de facto, you know, here's our shared experience. Now, as you talk to people, you might find out, yeah, you look the same, but you don't really have anything in common. Or you look different, but you have a lot in common. But that's not what our, you know, our eight brains, you know, these old brains that we have, that's not what our brains see. Our brains see the race first, and we start making associations based on that. Yeah, l- let me give you an, a, another example that I just <clears throat> um, saw. Do you know who a guy named R- Ronnie Coleman is? Eight-time Mr. Olympia, yeah, from, yeah, 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 yeah. From, from Dallas. I mean, the guy, the guy, he was a, he built, was a built like me, right? Built like me, right? Identical. <laughs> but I think from from Dallas, he was a cop, you know. And one of his friends suggested he start lifting, and he goes to this gym. But there's a documentary right now on Netflix called Ron Coleman. You know, it's it's phenomenal. I recommend people watch it. But he talks about how you know he went to. He went to college, graduated um, magna cum laude, right? Very top of his class. Mm-hmm. He had a he had a propensity for accounting. Mm-hmm. He tried getting a job uh, as an accountant, right? For two years, and everybody said, "Yeah, you don't have enough experience. You you don't have experience." And obviously, right? You change the color of his skin, and he's probably going to get hired up like that, right? So, I mean, that to me was just so glaring, but to, to his credit, or maybe not, he didn't, he didn't seem to be bitter. He didn't seem to be angry. He wasn't like, you know, God, can you believe it? He was just like, yeah. So he moved on and he decided to become a cop, right? Because the accounting thing just wasn't happening for him. 
Yeah. Uh, and obviously he's, he's doing very well today with a line of supplements and things, although his body has been obliterated and he has to use crutches and stuff. You know, he's, he's one of the only men that were able to, he was able to squat 800 pounds several times. Incredible. But I, I, I digress. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, and you know, in each one of those situations, if I were one of your listeners, I might say, well, just because that one person didn't get a job, that doesn't prove anything, right? And maybe it doesn't. But what happens is when you look at these things in aggregate, yeah. when you not just take the one example, but now you take tens or hundreds of thousands of examples and you find out, for instance, which is a true stat, that at every level of education, the black unemployment rate is higher than the white unemployment rate. At every level of education, uh, the median earnings is higher for whites than blacks. You know? So when you start compiling all of these things and you see them on aggregate, you start to realize, okay, there are some systemic challenges. There are some structural issues that we have. Um, that's one of the things, Rip, that's so important that, um, that I try to make people understand. The, the inclination when you hear about these kind of issues is to think about your own experience. So I could easily say, but look, I'm from East St. Louis, you know, one of the most challenging places to grow up in America, and I've achieved, quote unquote, some success. So all you have to do is work hard. That would be easy for me to say, right? And it captures people's emotions. And sometimes people like to say that kind of stuff about me to try and prove that, you know, all you have to do is work hard. Racism doesn't exist. But you can't look at one example. If you're doing a math equation, and you're plotting out these dots, and you got all these dots clustered over here, and then you have one or two way over in the corner over there. Those are outliers. You don't really even look at those outliers anymore, right? You focus on where all these clusters are. In real life, we're just data points, right? I hate to reduce us to that, but yeah. <laughs> we're just data points in this regard, and we could be outliers. So I urge people to, you know, to kind of. Um, don't focus on your own experience and say, because I did this, or if I were in that situation, I would do that. Look at what happens to most people in that situation. That is what you learn about the human brain and the human condition, right? This is how the brain reacts in this situation, or this is how people have reacted uh, in this situation. And that's where you really start to see the patterns and the trends emerge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you have such a wealth of information in that wonderful brain of yours. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate uh, so let's, let's dive into n- nutrition. Now, now, uh, now, now, <laughs> look, before I mention that, yeah, yeah. You know, we talked about, uh, we, you know, we, we're not going to talk about all that other stuff that much. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> see, how, see how it happens? People yeah. really do want to talk about this if, if they feel like, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a no-risk you know, uh, place where we can talk about it and folks are not going to judge us and all that stuff. So I, I really encourage people to engage in, in those discussions uh, because they're important and, and we never have them. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and let's shift to nutrition. Good, good. <laughs> so, so you are uh, a, a whole food plant-based brother of mine. Absolutely. You, absolutely. You, you, you've got, uh, you even got your degree uh, in plant-based nutrition from, I believe, eCornell. Yep, yep, I do have a certification from yep. them. Yep. Uh, so tell me, how, how is it that a black man 
from East St. Louis has now embraced and discovered whole food plant-based nutrition? Well, partly because of people like you. <laughs> you're doing all these documentaries and you're putting all this information out there. <laughs> well, you know what? That's really nice. But I will say that, that I feel like, especially now that the, um, the veil has kind of been lifted, that, yeah. that I am not doing nearly enough for uh, the black community. Not, not anywhere near. So. We, yeah. we can talk about that. We can, we can yeah. certainly work on that. But certainly the work that you, your father, I mean, that, you know, all that has been, you know, very, very important. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think that I would have been the prime candidate for plant-based nutrition. I mean, I was absolutely a meat eater. I mean, I was meat and potatoes uh, all the way, as was, you know, all of my family. And I've always been very thin. Uh, people think I'm thin. I'm thin now. Uh, but you know, I was skinny. I, let me just, you know, I was just like skinny, yeah. <laughs> sickly looking skinny. Um, so I thought because I was skinny that I could eat anything I wanted to and, and I'd be healthy. I, you know, I was young. I could run all day, play basketball, you know, all day, play tennis, whatever it is. Um, so I, I didn't think much about nutrition uh, as a young person. But I, I did watch my family, you know, over time so many people in my family would have these chronic health issues, you know, and several people in my family have, you know, been overweight as well, but I would watch all these issues and I'm just taking note, you know, of, of what I'm saying. And, um, it's really hit me hard when I had, um, I think my cholesterol was 299. Whoa. I had gotten out of college and uh, I think I was in graduate school. I just left, left graduate school. 299. So, of course, uh, I think it was when I first got to Jacksonville. Uh, so, of course, they, you know, the doctors wanted to put me on a statin, and I took the statin. And I've never been one that wanted to take medication. Um, so I started to read and started to think about, you know, what could I do, um, you know, on my own without the medicine. And then I'm still looking at my family, and things started to get really bad. Uh, I had a sister who uh, had breast cancer and passed away in her mid-30s. Uh, I had another sister just a few years later who passed away uh, of a, a heart attack uh, at 48. Uh, I, I recently, uh, over the last couple of years, have a brother who passed away with prostate cancer. My father died of, you know, throat cancer. My mother uh, just passed away this year with Alzheimer's. So my whole immediate family has had these chronic health issues. And it's not really that unique to my family. When you go back to where I'm from, I remember several years ago going back and going to like a Walgreens or something to uh, help my mother get a prescription filled. And when you got back to the pharmacy, I mean, it looked like they were giving stuff away. The line was so long. I mean, it had extra chairs back there. People are waiting. And you know how when you go to get a prescription filled, they say, oh, sir, it'll be 20 minutes. It'll be 25 minutes. Would you like to stay? Would you like blah, blah, blah? And you say, sure, sure, 20 minutes, I could do it. But when we gave them our prescription, they're like, sir, it's going to be five hours. Um, how, where can we call you? <laughs> because it was just a backlog. And so it was an unhealthy community, uh, just like so many communities that are on the margins uh, in America today. Uh, partly due to uh, this whole notion of food deserts. Um, yeah. I'm sure, you know, you've probably covered it on your podcast in the past that, you know, there's some places that just 
don't have access to, to fresh foods, uh, or if they do, it's very expensive. So it's cost prohibitive in poor neighborhoods to do that. So, so that's what got me started, Rip. Yeah, I want you to come back to that. But yeah. so you brought up food deserts. Yeah. In your, in your opinion, or is what exactly is a food desert? Like how far away do you have to be from, you know, uh, a legitimate, you know, like grocery store or something like that? Yeah, now there's probably a technical, there's probably a technical definition, you know, with the range. And, and I don't know that. I think that from my perspective, you know, who can, can you practically get to a store, particularly if you're in an area that has um, uh, where you have, it's a poor area where everybody doesn't have their own transportation. Uh, do you have public transportation that is practical that people can get to a store? So I, I, don't, I don't know what the technical yeah. definition is in terms of the mileage, but, you know, can I wake up today and, yeah. you know, is it very easy for me to get to a, a grocery store where I can have access to some healthy foods? In many places, you have these little shops uh, that, just really charge really high high prices for the few fresh fruits and vegetables they might have. The little convenience stores, you know, they don't specialize in that stuff, so they mark it up really really high. So so that's a that that is a challenge. That's getting a lot better though, you know, over the last fifteen years or so since I've been really looking at this. It's certainly gotten a whole lot better. All right. So I'm so, I didn't mean to like uh, yeah. interrupt you there, but so you were saying that so you just. You would go to like the pharmacy and the five hour wait and everybody in your family has now, it sounds like it's close to you, has, has perished from some sort of chronic Western disease. So I'm looking around, man, and I, I've always had, and this is probably the part of what, you know, fueled me to, to make it out of those challenges in East St. Louis. I've always tried to figure out how do I learn from the mistakes of other people? Like, I don't want to have to experience all the bad stuff to know it's bad. Right. If you did it and this happened to you, I'm going to probably try to avoid the thing you did. And so, I, I, you know, I I started reading at the same time and I realized that there is this link between, you know, nutrition and some of these chronic health issues. So I decided, let me let me stop taking this statin. Let me figure out if I can just on my own start eating things that won't cause my cholesterol to grow up to go up. And I did. I let go of that statin. And within a year, my uh, cholesterol was back down to like 155. And that was it. So once that happened, I said, not only, you know, is this important for me, but I got to find a way to tell more people about that. That's why I got engaged with the eCornell program to go and learn about plant-based nutrition. I hate to give people advice unless I've studied it, you know, the science of it, you know. Um, so I wanted to really understand it before I go out and start to give people advice about it. And, uh, obviously it's been something that's been very important to me. I have two kids, a nine year old, six year old. They've been a hundred percent plant-based all their lives. Um, my, my wife, while she was pregnant, was a hundred percent plant-based, had great pregnancies uh, both times. Um, it's just been such a part of our lives and slowly, uh, as you extend out to our, um, not our immediate family, but, you know, as you get start to get out into, you know, cousins and in-laws and, you know, our external uh, family members, we're starting to see lots of shifts. Uh, people are starting to eat a little bit differently. They might tease us about it, but then we secretly find out that they're starting to dabble in plant-based nutrition. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I hope that we've had some influence. And, I, and I've been working hard 
Rip, to try and figure out how do I, how do I get at the root cause? Here it is. We have all the science in the world that demonstrates, like, you know, pretty straightforward that plant-based nutrition is our best approach. That and exercise, obviously, is our best approach to try and avoid these chronic long-term health issues. I mean, all the evidence is there, but people still haven't made that transition. I spent uh, about 15 years studying emotional intelligence. So I've been working hard to try to get at, you know, is it something around emotional intelligence that is the root cause that is, that is uh, you know, really um, making it very difficult for people to, to latch on to this science, to take this science and, and somehow uh, employ it in their, in their daily lives. So a lot of my work has been trying to, how do we look at impulse control? How do we look at people's self-awareness? their own self-regard. How do we get at these issues uh, to try to get at, if I can fix these issues, if I can help them improve in these issues, then maybe I can get them to now uh, start to dabble in plant-based nutrition. Um, But it's tough. As Dr. Conrad has written, every single piece of food that you eat will either help you or hurt you in the long run. The same goes for our pets. Every bit of food we feed our pets will either keep them healthy and active or hurt their chances of having a life filled with energy and vitality. Why compromise your pet's health with junk ingredients and unknown animal products when you can fill them up on a healthy, all-natural, plant-strong diet with clean protein? Try it today by visiting the episode place at plantstrongpodcast.com to claim 50% off your order. You know, you mentioned the science, right? And I think a lot of people are, for whatever reason, they're skeptical of the science. They don't really understand the different levels of, of science that are out there, the different levels of studies that are out there. And then you've got the you got the keto and the paleo people that are touting their science, right? And so it's almost like you know, depending upon whatever uh, dietary religion, you know, you're, you're embracing, you can try and find science that supports it. And, and, then, and then you correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but then as a, as a black person, you also are probably even that much doubly skeptical about maybe information that's out there, maybe even if it's about, about health and nutrition. Yeah, uh, and I think and I think you talked a little bit about that in in the fragile mind, yeah. you know, kind of what's what's going on there. But yeah, it's true, it's true. And again, it goes back to um, some of you know they have reason to be skeptical yeah. in some ways. I mean, they're, you know, black people have been subject of experiments where uh, you know uh, the Tuskegee experiments, for instance, where you know people who had syphilis were told by doctors that they were getting medication, but for years they were getting a placebo just yeah. so we could study the effect on the body. Yeah. And this is one example. There, there are many examples where the people who were supposed to be helping to take care of you were the people who were exploiting you. And so there's this still lingering yeah. uh, skepticism uh, that people have uh, around uh, some in a medical pers- uh, uh, profession. So that's part of it. 
The, the other thing too is, you know, I talk when I'm talking to people who look like me, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, look, you know, culture is great. Culture is wonderful. I mean, it's that whole thing about shared experiences, people that like being some way that we can talk about these experiences. And all that is great, but we got to step back. And uh, I call it the, like the, the pride and the perils of culture, right? It's a lot to be proud of uh, for whatever your unique culture, wh- however you define culture, right? Whatever that unique uh, aspect of it is. But I look at here are the things that are helping us yeah. Here are the things that are not helping us. The stuff that's not helping us, I don't want to do anymore. And so I am not going to eat, you know, uh, pig feet. <laughs> I'm not going to eat, uh, you know, we used to call them snoots, but it's a pig snout. Yeah. yeah. Snoots, barbecue snoots. I'm not going to eat chitterlings, you know. Yeah. That stuff has zero nutritional value for me. And so just because my mother and my grandmother and, you know, her grandmother ate that, I'm not going to eat it. And you can't take my black card away because uh-huh. I decided I'm not going to eat chitlings. You know, I'm still, I'm just as black as you are, right? So I joke with people about that. But culture and uh, tradition and, and all that is a, is a real strong barrier sometimes uh, for people making the changes that we obviously need to make. Well, you know, so along those lines in your book, you tell the story about how when you were living in Florida, I think Jacksonville, you invited, yeah, you know, I think your, your family came down to visit you and you, and, and you, you, you know, you made just for them because you were already, I think, either plant-based or vegetarian, yep. but you cooked up a steak for them, I think it was, and you also did some <laughs> asparagus and... And they, they ate the meat, but they wouldn't touch the asparagus. And I think you said in your book, you said that your mother basically turned to you and said something like, man, are, are, what are you doing? Are you eating white food? Something like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. You, you eating, uh, this is what white people eat. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I have it right here. You say, y'all are eating like them, referring, like them. To, <laughs> referring to the white people. Look, so, look, I was trying to be nice to my mother. Uh, no, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you eating like them. Uh, so I think, um, but so my question to you is, do you think that black people then see eating, you know, eating plant-based or if you're eating like vegan, then all of a sudden you're eating like, you know, white people, which, which, which I can tell you most white people don't eat that way. Yeah. I was just getting ready to say that. So I think that there is some truth to that because it's not how we grew up. It's how we see people on TV eat and, you know, people that we've seen on TV don't look like us. So it's like them. And I was getting ready to say, it's the same thing when you go into some poor white communities, they might say, are you eating like them? But then they're talking about wealthy whites, right? It's always, you know, us versus them in some way. So I think it, it does apply, but it's just, it's fascinating. Um, and that's why it's certainly been legitimate uh, that we've had some issues with food deserts. That's absolutely legit- legitimate. Also though, even when we've had access to the healthiest foods is not the foods necessarily that we chose, right? Yeah. Like my parents avoided the asparagus. I'm sure in the grocery stores in East St. Louis, they had asparagus. It's just not what we picked because it wasn't part of how my mother learned how to cook from her mother. And then her, you know, it wasn't part of the culture. So yeah. I've absolutely uh, tried to dismantle that whole thing with my family. And for me, Rip is even deeper than that. I try not to buy into the commercialism. And so I don't understand how 
why emergency rooms have to be on call because they know on Thanksgiving night that they're going to have a whole lot of people coming in there with heart attacks, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is bizarre. I'm not looking forward to the holiday so I can eat myself into a heart attack. That, that, that just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And so for us, we just don't tie food to our celebrations in that way. And we especially don't tie unhealthy food to our celebrations. Things are going really great for me. So I'm going to destroy my body with this unhealthy stuff. That, yeah. that doesn't compute for me. <laughs> so, so, so you got that reaction from your mother. I don't know. How, how long ago was that? Was that um, 10 years that, ago? That had to be 15 years ago. Okay. So 15 years ago. And so what have you found in the last five years? Are you getting, still getting that kind of reaction or do you, do you have different friends or are your, you know, your cousins and stuff? Do they? It's absolutely changing. Yeah. It's absolutely changing. Um, you know, I travel a lot. Um, I'm usually going speaking, presenting, you know, in some city somewhere. And I always try to go to the local plant-based restaurants and I always see black people, even if it's a community that there are not a lot of black folks in the community. I always see black people in the restaurant or working in the restaurant um, uh, even amongst my circle. I mean, I'm in two different fraternities and I have a big group of friends and there are several of my friends that are either hundred percent plant-based or either trying plant-based part of the time. And at the very least, they're not teasing me anymore about being plant-based. Now, part of it is at this age now, we're getting, we're getting close to that 50. Um, some of them have already had some health issues and that has caused them to look back and say, well, wait a minute, he's, the stuff he's been saying over the last 10 years, eh, maybe, maybe we need to think about that. So um, absolutely, I'm seeing a shift in a broader community, regardless of your background, race, and all that stuff. I'm seeing more people open to this idea, more restaurants that can cater to a plant-based uh, uh, lifestyle. And absolutely, within the African-American community, uh, I'm, I'm seeing this being a, a, a something that people are trying some of it is celebrity driven. We, you know, we, yeah. we hear about Beyonce and you know, all this stuff. I, I know people, um, sometimes they'll listen to, you know, a celebrity before they'll listen to their doctor. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it's happening. It's happening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you seen the documentary that's out called Invisible Vegan? I have not. I haven't seen that one. So I highly recommend it. Uh, it is... It's, it's basically uh, narrated and directed by a black woman. Uh-huh. And it's all about the black culture. And, um, and a, basically overlaps a lot of the conversation that we're having here. But she does a beautiful job uh, uh, telling this story um, about, <laughs> about nutrition or lack, that lack thereof in the, in the black community and how things are changing. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I'll take a look at it. I'll take a look at it because it, yeah. it's, it's absolutely changing. It, uh, and it needs to, man. We, we have, I, I think we mentioned this, but to really put a point on this, if anybody needs to be adopting a plant-based lifestyle, it yeah. is us. Yeah. Uh, because we struggle in all these areas of uh, chronic health. We, you know, we struggle. We experience these, these disparities. Now, it's not just because of our nutrition. Some of it has to do with stress and there's studies that talk about all of that, but 
but you know, the part that we can control, we ought to be trying to control. Well, you know, and, and the stats are, you know, that, that uh, the blacks are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer, black women, uh, 60% more likely to die from diabetes, yep. 30% more likely to die from heart disease. And then, as I think you said, maybe it was your, your father, right? Uh, the, the amount of prostate cancer in, in black men is just off the charts. Yeah. We're, 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 I saw an article uh, several months ago about amputations and, you know, you know, the rise in the number of black people who are having to get amputations as a result of complications from diabetes. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we have got to, and it saddens me uh, to think about people uh, who are going through that struggle. And that's why, again, I'm trying to figure out how do I, yeah. how do I flip that switch to help people start to make this transition so that they can save their lives and improve the quality of their lives while they're here. Well, again, I'll say it. I think you'd love Invisible Vegan. And she also, she does it through the lens of a woman and it's primarily focused towards, towards women. Yeah. And it's, it's the first, you know, most documentaries that are out there, I think are more male, male kind of, you know, skewed. So this yeah. is, it's yeah. really, it's really beautiful. And I bet if you watch it, yeah. you'll get a lot of great ideas and you should probably try and connect with the director. She seems oh, really yeah. dynamic. I'll definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Are, are you lactose intolerant? I say everybody is. <laughs> but no, I'm not technically. Uh, yeah. Now, I, 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 I was, um, I grew up with asthma until I was about five. Mm. And the doctor recommended that I avoid any dairy products back then. Uh, but I think starting in kindergarten, I tasted some ice cream and it didn't do anything to me. So the doctor started to introduce uh, dairy back into my diet. And I think I was fine. I could eat it then. Uh, but I, I don't think as an adult, I've had any negative reactions uh, beyond the fact that I don't think my body wanted the dairy. I, I, I didn't have any. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, I mean, I think about that and I think about how many kids are probably going to school. And they're basically being, you know, asked or almost forced to drink their milk when they've actually got a lactose intolerant that is doing them no justice whatsoever. It's almost a form of institutional racism. Yeah, it yeah. is. Um, we, <laughs> this is another whole conversation uh, because I do think that uh, that's the thing about uh, the isms, right? Data. Yeah confined into a particular area of life, right? If you have a certain ideology about a certain group of people, that's going to carry across all aspects of life. So whether it's health, whether it's education, uh, whether it's um, employment, whatever that category is, that ideology will come with you. And there are systems and structures that have been put in place that suggest that some people's lives just don't matter as much as other people's lives. I mean, I, you know, all we got to do is look at the history book to see just blatant examples of that. We are not completely past that point. So yeah, absolutely. Some of the things that we do, um, you know, some of the, some of the, the ways that we market food toward people, uh, our education system reinforces some of those things. So absolutely. Yeah. You know, the poor people get access to the, the, the least, quality food, right? The food with the 
least amount of nutritional value. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were talking probably five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago about your, like, you're like, I'm trying to figure out what that switch is, right? What's the switch? And I think, uh, you know, and I have found that when you can somehow let, and I'm particularly talking to men right now, because I find women can much more easily embrace this, this lifestyle and this message. Yeah, right. but, but men, they're so hung up on their masculinity, right? And if they're not having their meat, if they're not having their chicken, if they're not having their fish, if they're not having their, their dead animals, yeah. then, then they're, they're potentially going to have their man card revoked, right? <laughs> and if you're a black man, you're going to have your black card and your man card revoked, right? <laughs> but, but, I mean, I think that there's – if you can – Figure out the right way to spin that, spin that, and have them realize that. Listen, the most masculine way to eat is, you know, you're not going to leave the planet at 35 or 42 from a heart attack or cancer. You'll be around. You know, you're not going to, you know, um, go down the path with the status quo. You're going to do your own research and then figure it out, and then and then stand for something. I mean, but you know, you got to put your 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 spin on it and figure it out, but. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly part of it. And I think it's interesting. I, some of the last studies I read suggested that women are more likely uh, to dabble in plant-based nutrition, but men have been more likely to stay if you can get them to dabble. Mm. So, and partly it's because of that, you know, I got to do it. I'm, I'm going I'm to see this thing through it. It might still relate to that whole that idea of masculinity. But yeah, I, I found if I could get people to try things, um, that they typically, they just wouldn't have come across uh, that would work. Now, I, I'm not a big fan, Rip, of the substitutes, you know, no, the right. yeah. burgers, the substitute and all this, because, you know, they, from a health standpoint, some of that stuff just, you know. <laughs> but for some people, uh, I'm wondering if that is, you know, some good transition food for them because it tastes like what they were used to in the past and, so for some people, maybe that is the route that they might want to take. I think you're right. I think, I think that can be a good stepping stone right. to try and, try and bridge the lifestyle and have them go, wait, this is just made from plants. And yeah. we, don't, we don't need to hit a home run on the first day and have them doing, you know, all intact whole grains and, you know, legumes and lentils and all that. Right. But, uh, yeah, let's just try and get them there. <laughs> we got to try to figure it out. One step at a time. If I got, you know, one-on-one, I'm pretty yeah. effective. But you can't scale that. So I'm, 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 I'm in the lab, so to speak, just trying to work, trying to figure out how do, I, how do I scale this so that you don't have to have all these individual conversations. So, again, I've been, I've been working hard. I, I did a clinical trial with the, Mayo, with the Mayo Clinic that I can't say a whole lot about now because we're going to be publishing the study soon. But I created a um, a twelve week transition plan and really based it around emotional intelligence. And wow. the participants, they said, "Look, the most valuable part of this whole thing wasn't necessarily learning about the nutrition. I could have gotten that somewhere. The most valuable part was learning about the emotional intelligence piece. I mean, nobody had made me think about myself that way and why I make the decisions uh, that I do. So I." You know, examples that I would give people would be, you know, you've had a hard day, things didn't go right at work, 
you come home and the first thing you want to do is to bake these cookies uh, that your grandmother used to bake. And that's your comfort food. So, you, you, you know, you bake these cookies and you start to feel better. I'm urging people to go back and think about, is it really the taste of those cookies that's making you feel better? Or is it that connection to your grandmother? Mm. And if it's that connection to your grandmother that really makes you feel safe and makes you feel better, maybe then we can watch some videos, go look through some photo albums, you'll tell stories about your grandmother. Maybe there are other ways to have that emotional need satisfied without having the cookies there. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to get at. Um, how do I help people understand what they're feeling and why they're feeling that way and not use food as the mechanism to temporarily comfort them? Because, you know, you, you still going to have that issue. Once those cookies, the high from those cookies are going away, you still got some issues you got to deal with. So, so I'm, I'm working on it. Really. No, you are. I'm not there yet. I'm working. <laughs> uh, so do you feel like this, um, and so it sounds to me like this, this lifestyle, you being, you know, plant strong, right? Whole food plant strong yeah. is, is having an impact on your leadership style. And maybe it like spills over into everything you do. I, I think that there is some, um, now, now this is going to sound biased. So I apologize for anybody yeah. who's listening who's not uh, plant-based. But I, but I think for a lot of people who are plant-based, it's deeper than just the plant-based. You know, it's like, you know, who am I? You know, what am I, what am I doing here? I think people are asking bigger questions. And then they start to think about the environmental impact and, you know, what this does to animals. And I, it's, it's, it's bigger questions than can I have something good to eat today? So I think that's where it crosses over into really all aspects of my life. I try to be open. If I wasn't open, then I would have never tried the whole plant-based thing, right? I tried to be able to roll with changes. So I got to eat something differently than I used to eat before. I try to have, you know, some confidence in, in who I am and, you know, uh, assure enough in myself that I can make this change and other people might be pointing at me and laughing and teasing me, but I feel like I'm strong enough to, to withstand that. Yeah. That's going to carry over to other ideas that I have about work or, or anything else. So, so it really is a lifestyle. It's a way of thinking about the world, your place in it, uh, you know, where you are vis-a-vis -vis other species. And, you know, it, it starts to get pretty deep, man. And I, I just think that that is uh, something that I find in common with a lot of people uh, who are, you know, 100% plant-based. It's, it's, it's bigger than just the food. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is amazing how, how important food is in our life and how – you know, depending upon what you eat or what you don't eat, uh, it puts you into a certain like group or subgroup and uh, people identify you a certain way. And sometimes we even identify ourselves, yeah. you know, that way. I mean, just to, I mean, just, like I just think about the bond that you and I have just because you're whole food plant based. I mean, that just speaks volumes right there. That's right. Just off the top. We yeah, feel yeah. Like we know each other a little bit uh, yeah. because of that. I, I do think that it's fun. I, I, you know, I, and I know that I'm going against the grain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, 
Um, but I, but I, but I really feel like it's important that that people kind of somehow can start to put food in in better perspective. Um, if we're celebrating somebody's graduation, it's that achievement that we're celebrating. Why do we have to have a big cake there? It's not about that cake. Like, let's say the cake wasn't there. Are we not proud of them anymore for graduating? Like, does that change the whole memory? Ten years from now, we will never remember, we won't remember this person's graduation because we didn't have the cake there. So it's really thinking about is taking an, an inventory as to how important food is in your life, like how important food. Uh, affects your life or food choices. You know, you're spending your whole day thinking about what you're going to eat tonight. Just thinking about how you might be controlled today by your food choices uh, and what the quality of those choices are and start to try and unravel that. So, you know, the next holiday, that these are the traditional foods that you eat. Certainly you can find vegan alternatives for those. But what if you just said, look, it's not about the food. It's going to be about the experience and the connections that I have with other people. If you start to somehow uh, untangle that toxic relationship uh, that we have with food, uh, it changes everything. I mean, it it really does. I like food that tastes good. You know, I really do like a great meal. I'll drink a smoothie. That might not be the best tasting smoothie in the world if I know that it has the nutrients that I need because that's what my body needs. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm past that. <laughs> my taste buds are different. So you said that you're, you got two kids, six and nine. Uh-huh. Bo- boys, girls, one of each, what? One of each, one of each. My daughter is nine, my son is six. Okay. And um, what are their thoughts? Are they, are they excited and proud to be plant-based? Is that something that they, they wear with, with pride or not? So far, we're good, man. I, you, know, yeah. you know, obviously, we wanted to be, you know, sensitive to how it would impact their lives, you know, when they are eating differently than everybody else. And would they then feel withdrawn and all that stuff? And so far, that hasn't happened. I mean, they seem to be proud vegans. And um, they will tell you, uh, shucks, since the time they were two or three years old, if you tried to give them something that wasn't vegan and we weren't around, they'll say, hey, that's, that's not vegan. You know, I can't eat that. So at this point, I feel like they're, they're, they're thinking about why they're eating this way. And part of it is they don't want to eat animals because they read about animals. They go to the zoo and see animals. Yeah, yeah. And my daughter's like, we're looking at these animals at the zoo the restaurant is right there and they're eating the animals that we look at. It just didn't make sense to, to her. So, so far we're good. We do have to deal with the fact that at everybody's birthday party or at every school event, what do they do? Yeah. They want to bring in some unhealthy food. And so we have to make sure that the school has something in the freezer that they can thaw out and, and have the kids eat this plant-based um, so it, it requires us us having to make those adjustments, um, but but they have not demonstrated thus far uh, to us that they uh, in any way uh, are feeling isolated uh, yeah. because yeah. of this. Uh, they feel they've expressed that they feel lucky that this is the way that they eat and that it may help them um, avoid some of those long term health issues that they have seen in my own family. 
they've seen it up close. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. fantastic. And, and I think that it's one of the best gifts that a parent can give and pass on to their children. I'm, I'm like you, although I'm, I'm substantially probably older than you, but I've got a six-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And just yeah. like you, they're 100% plant-strong and have been their whole lives. My wife had all three of her pregnancies all plant-based. So That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, so I, I, yeah. So I want to um, – you wrote an article in your LinkedIn um, profile discussing the dis- disproportionate amount uh, – of impact that COVID-19 has been having on uh, communities of, of black people. Um, and we're going to, we're going to link that in our show notes in the podcast. Yeah. But just to kind of, what are some of the reasons that you wrote about in that article that make blacks that much more vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah. And you might remember some of them more than me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But um, I think we've already talked about the fact that we have a disproportionate amount of chronic health issues. And so in some ways, we're like sitting ducks, right? It already sets Uh, you up, yeah. We're already set up. So so that's one aspect. Um, You know, another piece, unfortunately, is that because we still have some of these challenges around uh, employment and the type of employment that's available uh, for people of color, we are disproportionately folks that are on what are now, you know, mission critical jobs. Like, you know, some of those jobs that, you know, we don't really value, we don't pay attention to. Those jobs have become very important. Like some of these hourly jobs that, uh, uh, you know, people have working at the grocery store, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, keeping the lights on in some organizations, but being frontline people. So we're disproportionately, um, situated in the types of jobs that have been essential jobs. So we've been required to go into work. Uh, we, we are not, um, uh, you know, proportionally, we don't have the types of jobs that will allow people to work from home. So we're likely getting more exposed uh, to COVID at a higher level because we're out in it because it's our jobs, you know, we, you know, it's the kind of jobs yeah. we have to have. Yeah. So, we're already vulnerable, more vulnerable than the general population, and then we're getting exposed at a higher level than the general population. You yeah. put those two together, yeah. and yeah. it's pretty toxic. Yeah. And probably not as much. Not as much. Are, you hearing, are you hearing an echo on my end or not? No? Nope, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. okay. And then also probably not as much access to health care, testing. That's, testing. That's a big And, and all those things. Yeah, that's a big one. So, um, so access to healthcare is a challenge. Uh, we are less insured. Uh, our, you know, percentage of people with health insurance is lower. Uh, and then uh, you have, we've already talked about the fact that when I do have ha- access to healthcare, sometimes uh, my, my treatment uh, in the healthcare system has not been equivalent to somebody else's, somebody else's treatment, treatment in the healthcare system. system. Uh, so, uh, it's just, so it's just, uh, you know, you got a whole host of factors, factors that are driving this issue. issue. But my, my encouragement in that article was, again, yeah. The system needs to change, but we can't change that tomorrow, right? We, we can't fix the structural things tomorrow. This stuff is killing us today. The one thing that we do have control over 
is what we put in our minds. Exactly. Exactly. I want to. I want to read the last paragraph that you wrote because it's, I thought okay. it was really, really powerful. You said, let's keep shining a bright light on the systemic inequities that contribute to poor health in the black community and work hard to fix them. In the meantime, let's also control what we can control, what you just said. Every single piece of food that, we, that you eat will either help you or hurt you in the long run. Lastly, Let's commit to doing what we can, what we can, to make it much harder for COVID nineteen or any other health health threat to ravage our communities. Um, now that sounds pretty good. That guy, that guy did a good job on that. <laughs> that guy did a beautiful job. Beautiful job. And I, I just, I just hope it's landing everywhere it needs to land. Right. I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I, th- I think maybe the most important message that I'd like to close with is that. Uh, these are times of uncertainty uh, for a lot of people, right? Um, we don't know about this disease, you know, this virus. We don't know about this virus that's affecting all of us. Um, we don't know what the next steps are going to be as it relates to uh, our challenges with systemic racism and other forms of isms uh, in, in our society. And for a lot of people, I think they're teetering on the edge of hopelessness uh, as it relates to this. And I just, I, I wish I could fix that for them. You know, I, I hate that people are feeling that way. And I'm just hoping that people can just, you know, stand up, put one foot in front of the other and just carve out your little area. You know, you can't, you can't change the system tomorrow by yourself, but think about what you can do within your circles. But it has to start with taking care of yourself. Um, if you don't take care of yourself, including what you put in your body and what you do with your body, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to impact the lives of other people to the degree that you like to. So the first step is what are my thoughts and my behaviors? How am I taking care of myself? Uh, and then try and figure out what am I uniquely situated to do? You know, from from where I sit today, don't want to be too ambitious because it's harder to do it sometimes to take the first step. But from where I sit today, what am I uniquely qualified to do as it relates to recognizing the humanity in all of us and ensuring that all of us have an equal access at success in America? Mm-hmm. I think we all have a part to play. We just got to figure out what that unique part is. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, well, I tell you what, let's uh, let's do this again. Let's do this again. I'd like to check in with you again uh, in a couple months, and we'll we'll see we'll see where we are, and and hopefully uh, we're making progress on all fronts. Perfect, perfect. That would be great. It's things are changing rapidly week to week, so uh, hopefully we'll be in a, in a, in a good place by then. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Jarek Conrad, it has been my pleasure having you on the Plant Strong podcast. I want to thank you uh, for, for sharing this really important conversation with me at this very kind of crucial uh, time uh, with everything that's going on in this country. And I'm sure that there's some people that are out there that are listeners of the podcast that will take great value 
and, and comfort in this conversation. Well, I appreciate it. I can't thank you enough for having me on. I've been a fan, you know, from afar. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to get a, an opportunity to meet you. And again, thank you for, for the work that you've been doing to, to spread the message. Thank you. So let's do the sign off. We go peace. <laughs> peace. Engine two. Engine two. Keep it plant strong. Give me a fist bump. There right. we go. Yeah. All right. That works. All right. <laughs> Take care, Rip. Thanks so much for listening to this important episode. And thank you, Jarek, for your optimism, enthusiasm, hopefulness, and, and expertise. Only by truly understanding and accepting our past can we form better and more positive relationships with each other. We're all looking for shared human experiences, and it is my sincere hope that you enjoyed this one today. Don't forget, plantstock2020.com is the website if you're looking for a shared experience with me and the Esselstyn family from August 14th to the 16th. We'll see you soon. Peace, Engine 2. Keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong podcast team includes Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Kryle Esselstyn for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it.